Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today I speak with Carl Miller, co-founder and research director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos, the UK's first think tank institute dedicated to studying the digital world. From fake news, digital democracy and information warfare to cybercrime, internet governance and automated decision-making, Carl's work explores how social media and technology is changing society, and his research aims to shed light upon how we might make better, more informed choices towards a more democratic world. Having won the 2019 Transmission Prize for his debut book, The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab, Carl presents programmes for the BBC's flagship technology show, Click, and has written for Wired, New Scientist and The Sunday Times, as well as The Telegraph and The Guardian. He's a visiting research fellow at King's College London, a senior fellow at the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, a fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime, an associate of the Imperial War Museum, and a member of the Society Board of the British Computing Society. Carl is a writer and thinker whose work I greatly admire, and it was such a privilege speaking with him again today. Carl, it's a pleasure to have you on the show again. How are you today? Hi there. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Yeah, I'm good, thank you. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. I'm going to dive in with the big question, which is to ask what you think may be happening in the global human psyche right now. Gosh, the global human psyche. Um, uh, I, I think um, there is a, a, a huge war happening over the, the global human psyche. I'm sure everyone you've asked that question to is going to bring their own little corner of, of, of their expertise or their work to bear on, on a question like that. It's, mm. a, it's a perfectly suited blank canvas of a question, really. Um, and, and, and for me, the, the kind of what I have been spending most of the pandemic doing with my colleagues and like looking at is is this kind of tremendous kind of warfare I suppose that's kind of broken out in information mm. um, and that very much has as its target as its kind of battleground maybe as its playground the human psyche and all the kind of like vulnerabilities and and strengths and and behaviors and attitudes which kind of are, are kind of are clustered and held there. Mm. And so before I dig into that a bit more because that's really rich territory I've got loads of questions that I want to ask you about that given the turmoil of the last year where are you finding meaning at the moment when the turmoil began um I I first found meaning in in trying to write about how people could really kind of guard themselves against at least the ways in which I knew that that, that psychologies and well-beings could be damaged by what was going to happen online um this was kind of at the beginning of the pandemic onwards um i knew that there was going to be just all this tremendous kind of exp- like a societally explosive stuff that was going to happen online it was going to lead to bad behaviors it always had before and i, I kind of wrote you know for wired and others like guides about how you detach yourself and you know how you guard against outrage and how you try and stop yourself being 
gamed online, all these other things. Um, and then actually, as we were on the foothills going in, I, I then actually did that, to be honest. So I actually d- d- deliberately detached myself from a lot of digital spaces and, and found meaning in, in actually very prosaic and concrete things. Um, I, I started to play the guitar again. Oh. Um, I, I did a bit of painting. I was actually, <laughs> you know, I was actually trying to find meaning in, in places that I hadn't found it in a while, which had nothing to do with any of the kind of online spaces or worlds or, or cultures, which I've actually spent most of my life trying to understand. Mm. That's fascinating that even though that's your, or maybe especially because that's your domain, that a detachment from that was was the way in which to go. And it's interesting that you mentioned music and art, because I think these are two things which a lot of people find solace in. And they also have a quality of time and sensory experience. As time slows down and you're actually physically making sound or making marks, that is enriching in a very different way to social media, technology, screens, which can often feel quite visual, but also quite flat. Yeah, I wonder what you felt about the difference between the virtual worlds and actually the the musical auditory realm <laughs> that you immersed yourself in. Well, so I, I like you, Natalie. You know, uh, do, do a bit of writing, and and there's there's always this kind of state. I don't know if you pursue it that that I try to reach of of kind of flow, um, of kind of it's a strange state, but it's kind of one of almost kind of effortless concentration. Mm. Um, mm. And, and it's, it's, it's difficult to reach and it's precious when you get there and, and almost anything can, can interrupt it. But for me, once you do a, a patch of, of writing that you, you, you know, you, you are, you, you're completely lost in, that, that sense of time really does actually leave you. Mm. And um, I, I guess like the pursuit of that flow state, um, I've probably spent more time than anything else in the pandemic actually trying to reach exactly because um time becomes something else and it it certainly doesn't become something which you're spending just um locked in your in your room or your house um you know uh, writing or music or or any of these pursuits you know the the thing that they have in common I think or certainly why so many people have pursued them is their ability to transport you somewhere else yeah and I think that's looking back now it's a bit of a post hoc rationalization perhaps but I definitely (laughs) think I've like somewhat been trying to do that over the pandemic Mm. and so I kind of want to dig into the work that you've been doing for the past decade now with with Demos. So as well as being its research director for the past nine years, you're also the co-founder. And I'm intrigued what initially moved you to set it up, because the landscape back then in technology, in social media and digital democracy was very different to how it is now. So what prompted you to get involved in this in this kind of work? Oh, I mean, it's 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 unrecognisably different. I mean, it was so quiet back then. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, at the time, you know, the, the number of people actually doing social media research, you could fit into a single room. Mm. Uh, and and, and there the were, you know, um, you know, uh, times when like m- most of the kind of academic researchers and us that were doing it were all in a in a room together i mean the reason we set it up was was because there was this huge vacuum i thought i mean our thinking was 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 it probably sounds very obvious now i mean you know we, we it was 2012 and the, you know social media platforms were on the rise and a Tahrir Square had happened in the, the Egyptian revolution and then very clearly social media was an agent of social change and the kind of like the, 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 the opportunity that we saw was this, this wasn't just going to be a, a technology which transformed society but it was also going to transform how society could be studied mm. and the, the kind of wonderful duality was that you could research these amazing new agents of social change using entirely new and and increasingly powerful ways of doing that research Mm. so that was the promise 
and kind of since then, really, I guess for for the last ten years, it's it's been very incremental kind of creeping forwards of of that kind of of that art and that science of 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 trying to understand what on earth these busy platforms are really saying and what they're doing and 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 how you create kind of you know r- rigorous evidence from them in a way which you can actually not just you perhaps but also government and and lots of other actors as well actually make decisions from but but in terms of the policy space and the policy discussion you know simply the question of you know is facebook for instance living up to its responsibilities mm. that is a, a, absolutely unrecognizably different than it was 10 years ago yeah. 10 years ago we were being dragged into you know, punditry on all kinds of issues because there's basically no one else that was saying much about digital platforms, really. Um, I remember being in, in, in meetings in the EU where the discussion was, should Facebook have a role in taking on terrorist exploitation of its platform? Mm. And, and both that discussion and the number of people involved is just entirely different now. It's like a different world. Because actually, you know, in terms of the the areas that you've explored over this time, you know, the studies that you've done, I think it's over 20 major studies you've done spanning online electoral interference, which has obviously been very present in public discourse in the last few years in particular. There's also radicalisation, digital politics, conspiracy theories, cybercrime and internet governance. And the list kind of just goes on and on. And since the inception of Demos, how has your focus evolved? What is it that you were looking at more maybe five, ten years ago that's different to what you're looking at now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I see like two main kind of directions of travel. Firstly, um, there is there is definitely a kind of optimistic to pessimistic arc uh, that has happened. <laughs> oh, no. So I know it's sad, but I mean, you know, the, the first conversation I remember being part of was in the wake of the Arab Spring, the question of whether digital platforms had made despotisms untenable globally. Wow, that is optimistic. And that was no, that, that was literally something which was being mooted and being discussed and proposed. It just wasn't possible to 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 be Mubarak in a world of Facebook. Mm. You know, suddenly all the you know everyone could organise on the streets. It was going to be impossible. And and obviously now that has turned full circle. And um, there is now now a discussion about whether democracies are tenable in the age of of social media and digital technology. And and there's plenty of people basically foretelling the the end of at least liberal democracy, if not democracy itself. So that's one arc. The other is less um, linear, but it basically is, is a winding one, which basically, I suppose, like is, is wrapped quite closely to the kind of history of those 10 years as well. So what we've realised is that most of the kind of major global issues which happen have a kind of digital dimension to them. And I guess, mm. you know, we our in research interests have kind of echoed that a bit. So 10 years ago, it was uh, radicalization. Then, as ISIS rose, it became more specifically ISIS and 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 how they were using social media as a way of propagandizing and recruiting people. Then, more broadly, with the rise of the far right and white supremacists and hate crime and um, the kind of like promotion of like supremacist and and racist ideologies. And then, obviously, um, elections and um, how electoral integrity and how that can be protected. And then, um, latterly, big global issues like climate change uh, and female sexual and reproductive rights and how those global conversations can be influenced by digital media, especially, I suppose, this idea that I know we're going to talk to, but information warfare and the kind of coordinated ways in which those conversations can be, at least, can be attemptedly manipulated. God, I mean, it just sounds, hearing you reel off that list and thinking back now, actually, through the last 10 to 15 years, it does feel as though... 
the pace of change, the acceleration through one crisis to the next or what have you, has accelerated somewhat. I mean, is that just my perception and just, or is this something that you think technology has fomented, this this acceleration of movements, of changes in sentiment, of um, bringing down or attempting to bring down of systems? Do you think technology has accelerated all of that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think technology accelerates almost everything that it touches, really. Um, I mean, I, academics, and I, I, you know, I hasten to add, I, I'm not one, but but academics do, do, do have a kind of very useful concept here around affordances. So mm. they, they tend to kind of see technology as, as, as giving various affordances, that is, making certain acts kind of cheaper or easier or faster to do. Mm. And I guess that that, that, that idea um, stretches all the way back to at least the conversations I was in in the early days. In the wake of the Arab Spring, the idea that digital technology was allowing political protest and activism to become easier and, and cheaper to do. And, mm. and I remember lots of comparisons would say the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s, where you would have, you know, professional charities with hierarchies and fundraising platforms and people who would be working full time on making sure that everyone was was uh, you know going to um, the capital at the same time mm. um, and organizing all the buses to get them there and and of course you know the, the the nature of activism that we see happening now is of a completely different kind when it comes to this organic almost out of nowhere capacity of society to kind of rise up sometimes violently those affordances those those, those acts which used to be hard and now are easy. You can kind of see that happening in so many different pinprick places across society, whether it's making games and cultural expressions or whether it's fundraising or whether it's gaining an audience or whether it's mm. community building, all of them. Um, so, so acceleration is part of it. But, but uh, I, I think just in, in, in general, like making things easier and cheaper uh, as well as faster are, are important parts as well. So let's dig in a bit more into the this murky and rich and complicated and pretty scary area of disinformation, which is an area which, as you say, you've, you've really been investigating. Because obviously this has been front and centre of the struggle to get trustworthy information out to the public and then get the public to be able to ascertain what to trust and what not to trust. How do you define disinformation and why is it so persuasive? Yes, disinformation. So... Um... At the outset, I should say that I prefer using information warfare to disinformation. And, and the reason why kind of cuts to the heart of what I see the problem to be and, and what we research. So whether it's extremist political groups or militaries or autocratic actors or dodgy PR companies, <laughs> um, the like origin of all of this, I think, is in an idea that um, information is a theatre of conflict. Hmm. Now, that is a big change. Information has always been used in war, but tracing the idea that it's actually a theatre of war, it's a space that war happens within, you trace back to the rewriting of military doctrines that began in around 2005. And that was the moment when militaries were basically asking themselves, how do we stay relevant in the information age? Militaries, you know, much like kind of normal companies, all of us, they too weirdly go through these kind of um, moments of existential crisis when they're worried that they're slipping out of touch, weirdly, weird as it sounds. And th there was one of those moments in, uh, around then. And the answer was to basically create information alongside air, sea, land and space and cyber as a theatre that they could see that they would need to manoeuvre in, that they would need to have weaponry within, that there was new forms of 
of, of territory to hold um, and new forms of threat to respond to. That opened the door, really, to, as I've said, a whole list of new protagonists stepping into centre stage. Extremists were amongst the first. Political campaigns weren't um, that far behind. And all of them, including militaries, began to kind of build out this kind of new trade craft for how you use information, basically entirely with an instrumental end. So the point of this idea really is that information only has an ulterior value. It's got no point. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false or, or incendiary or, or, or not or pacifying or violent. The only point is in the behavioural attitudinal effects that it can cause. And it's actually, it, when I've interviewed the people that, 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 that kind of do this kind of work, entirely relevant to them whether the information is true or false. Wow. Entirely relevant. So to me then, the, the kind of, to, to loop this back to your original question, that the problem isn't really one of disinformation circulating around society per se. It's really that the existence of these concerted, well-funded, organised, often centrally directed and, believe me, in, rapidly improving campaigns to reach into the socio-cultural lives of communities around the world for various kinds of ends, political, financial ends. Disinformation is, is one of the arrows in the quiver of the, of the people that, that run those kinds of campaigns. And I should say that the judicious selection of some facts over others um, is, is equally able to build an incredibly distorted picture of the world. And I often, often think that's actually a, a far more effective tactic is simply amplifying some truths and, and hiding others. Mm. Um, but that, that, that's really what I've been working on over the last year is, is trying to detect and understand the implications of the growth of that idea. I have so many thoughts in response to that. One of them, my first um, most impulsive response is to think, fuck, are we completely, absolutely wrecked as a species? Because, you know, we've got, to me, the biggest crisis is the planet. If we don't have a planet, all of this will matter not a jot because we're not going to have a home to have these kinds of battles on or what have you. But um, it just seems to me the more I open these different boxes of crises that we're facing... I don't really want to say it on this podcast, but I feel like the more fucked we are. And surely that can't be true because also we're extraordinarily creative and ingenious and there's a lot to be said for the, the compassion and vision of a lot of forward-thinking pioneers, I want to say. But do you keep your sanity when lifting the lid on all of these different issues that we're facing? And how do you personally charter a path forward in your mind towards a future that's more optimistic? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, bad news, the bad news first, of course, is that the, the, diff, the kind of difficulty or the threat here comes from the fact that information warfare is, is extremely cross-cutting. So you mentioned basically climate change and climate action, and that's a, that's a theme that we, we actively look at when it comes to, you know, the role of information warfare operations there. Likewise, human rights issues, likewise backsliding across Eastern Europe, likewise, obviously, elections or other major events or the wake of terrorist attacks. You know, information warfare as a, as a kind of capability set can be put to trying to influence all of those different things. Mm. Um, so it's very extensible. The good news is that civic society has become, you know, that that is one of the huge kind of trains of movement, I'd say, over the last, say, 10 years is that, you know, yeah, the space is much noisier now, but there's also far, far more people working on solutions, kind of creative solutions. And that's everything from, you know, informational activists and, and new, new kinds of like, you know, membership organisations kind of going out and kind of really going toe to toe with 
some of these campaigns, you know, and challenging them and, and even trying to drain them and, you know, um, exploit their weaknesses and um, flood their channels all the way to kind of, you know, um, people working on models and data science and, and trying to rebuild the kind of defensive apparatuses that the tech giants have already built in civic society to, to inform journalism and policy making, all those things. Um, so it, this isn't a one way street. This is really a question of dueling maths and dueling, dueling interventions. You know, the tradecraft gets better, but then so do the people trying to stop it. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of people that are trying to stop it now. The other piece of good news is that um, we haven't really, I think, um, this is kind of semi-gripe, um, but it's also good news, is that we, we haven't really thrown as a society that many possible solutions at this problem yet. And that's actually because, I think, we often conceive this as a problem of disinformation. So if the problem was simply that there are, you know, social media and, and in the internet are being used to propagate, like, lies and falsehoods, then the response is... Well, digital literacy and its, uh, you know, critical thinking skills, all of which I have no quarrel with. And it was back in 2012 that, that I wrote my first pamphlet on the importance of digital literacy in society. So, I, I've, you know, it's something that's very close to my heart for a long time, but it's not going to solve this particular problem. But lots of other things might. So there's a whole kind of array of, 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 of kind of asymmetric responses, basically. So diplomatic and econ economic sanctions, for instance, legal complaint international legal complaint that we might deploy to basically deter states doing this as we've deterred states doing lots of things in the past that aren't conducive to the well-being of citizens in the UK and and its allies which we haven't done yet so you know the problem is bad at the moment and um, the cost and penalties of people doing info operations is 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 very small but but I suspect that won't actually remain the case I actually suspect that as it becomes more and more serious and more and more obvious states like the UK and the US will will catch up quite quickly in terms of figuring out um, what its responses should be. Sounds like you're almost describing an evolutionary arms race, but in a technological setting. <laughs> this kind of constant struggle to just get ahead of the, the competition. The other thing that comes to mind is uh, the whole dark force, good force in Star Wars. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I wonder, you mentioned the climate information warfare, and that's one of the themes that you touched on a lot in this podcast about how we can wake up to and reckon with the crises that are attendant to the the climate struggles that we're having. So whether it's biodiversity loss or uh, increasing numbers of people having to migrate away from flooded homes, etc. What do you see as the most concerning trend in climate information warfare and how can we guard against it? Great question. So I'm hesitating because we're going to publish on this soon and I don't want to preempt or get wrong <laughs> that <laughs> things which I'm about to subsequently say. I would say probably to me specifically the most concerning is actually not just the nonsense which can be pumped out. It's actually the kind of the specific harassment of um, of activists and journalists, mm -hmm. you know, and and especially in societies which where where they are generally more vulnerable, there is an enormous amount of both kind of online and offline threats which kind of activists receive um, and journalists and researchers receive, especially those that, you know, do the gritty, difficult, expensive, investigative work of actually holding power to account in this area and actually exposing mendacious and corrupt activities. And they are very poorly protected online. You know, they, 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 they can receive threats and abuse. And it's become, you know, you, you get journalists together in, uh, even before COVID, you know, in, uh, in conferences talking about information operations. And it's absolutely standard 
for every journalist there to have stories about how they are constantly subject to death threats and abuse online. That is just a background hum of them doing their work. And that is concerning because that isn't necessarily going to like make global headlines because it is actually so common. But I think that that just strategically kind of increases the kind of like emotional and psychological pressure on the professions and the industries that we are leaning all the more heavily on to to guide the discussions that we have around climate action. Are there ways that we can best support people who are pushing themselves in the firing line in this way? Yeah, I mean, there are all, all, all kinds of... I mean, d- d- don't become involved in those activities in the first place. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably the place to begin. Um, you know, and, and it, it's actually... I, I, say, I say that w- with all due seriousness. I mean, you know, it, just when you do not think you are being made subject of an information operation is probably when you are. Mm. And, and activating our outrage is probably the most common tactic um, and it's the most easy to anticipate way of getting us to change our behaviour. And it's often when we are outraged um, that we will do the things like sending abuse online and, 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 and doing, committing behaviour that we, you know, we might not see as threatening, but it's certainly seen, by threatening, uh, seen as threatening by the people that receive it. Mm. Beyond that, kind of, and this is a prediction that, that others have made as well, like, I, I would say that societal resilience to disasters is probably going to become quite heavily politicised in the, in the years ahead. Mm. I mean, it already is. And, and part of that, I think, will be the politicisation of how we defend kind of journalists and investigators. I suspect that will become more of a topic of public discussion. And what we can all do is actually be part of that discussion and actually continue to raise it. Mm. Um, because that is something that, you know, there should be at the very least, kind of political concern with, you know, that journalists are are so much in the firing line now uh, when it comes to um, what they're doing online and what, you know, especially the journalists, as we've just been saying, that are working in the kind of areas which are just most important for people. Mm. And of course, without journalists, we don't have a window to see into the the different things that are being done that perhaps happen in the shadows outside of public awareness. And actually, in, in recent months, I've become particularly preoccupied or interested in the idea of the public commons in some form and its erosion and whether there is a way in which to create space that invites a more constructive and generative conversation because there's been such a huge change as we alluded to earlier in our capacity or even our tolerance to discuss difference even within the last five to ten years that I wonder whether it's possible now to kind of for example, publicly broadcast the kinds of debates that we would have seen from Intelligence Squared between a Hitchens and his opponents or, or what have you. That sort of robust, often quite provocative debate doesn't seem to be welcome in public domains, in social media, across social channels. It feels as though all of those different conduits have narrowed and I wonder what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, I, I think there is, um, there always has been a kind of vulnerability with the, the kind of debating which which Hitchens was was so masterful at. This kind of <laughs> parliamentary style debating, you know, standing mm. at the dispatch box and this house believes. Yeah. <laughs> There's always been a kind of vulnerability of 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 that kind of adversarial kind of face off. Mm. Um, kind of um conjoining with the the the, the you know i i know attributes of, of of online networks which you cover so well natalie and and kind of what they do and the tribes they create and so on to kind of create kind of genuinely corrosive and 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 spaces where um that kind of discussion just can't really happen in in any kind of um good spirited way hmm. to me like the the answer there is um is actually to reach to kind of other 
kind of subcultures which are actually valued things other kinds of things so I, I sometimes work for BBC Click uh, and kind of which is a kind of the BBC's tech show and present short programs for them and probably the one that I've loved to do more than anything else was to go to Taiwan um, and look at V Taiwan which is a digital democratic initiative mm. and that's all about finding consensus the whole thing is is trying to basically well they they, they, they use this platform called polis to basically eliminate from view um, all of that kind of grandstanding all of that playing to your own home base and um, preaching to the choir and instead really only make visible in the discussions that they have online statements which um, are gaining and and are, are written to gain support across whatever divides in that debate exist. Wow. That sounds incredibly advanced in terms of thinking about it as sort of psychological developmental stages. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds like that's pretty far up there. I think... Probably in terms of um, developmental stages, it's it's kind of deliberately trying to move us beyond the kinds of online debates that mm. that we've seen on Twitter and Facebook, and and to recognise that 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 if we are going to create debates which have democratic value, um, they can't simply be fiery exchanges between two entrenched sides, mm. leading to a kind of narrow majoritarian outcome, because that was the referendum here over Brexit and. <sighs> I don't think anyone would think that that actually strengthened our democratic institutions. And in fact, you know, I was looking through the Demos website and one of the lines I particularly loved was where it says, at a crossroads in Britain's history, we need ideas for renewal, reconnection and the restoration of hope. Challenges from populism to climate change remain unresolved and a technological revolution dawns. But the centre of politics has been intellectually paralysed. That particular phrase, the centre of politics has been intellectually paralysed, really struck me. How might we revive this central voice and engage more fruitfully with the challenges we now face? I mean, yeah, if, if Natalie, if I, if I knew the answer to that, I think I'd probably be, you know, the, the Liberal Democrat Prime Minister of the UK or something by now, or certainly running to be it. I, I don't want to speak on behalf of all of Demos because, you know, there's, there's definitely um, a whole array of amazing political thinkers in there that are yeah. that will have different views on this question. Um, to me, when Demos was established, it was to try and um, create a alternative to the kind of hard left of the Labour Party and to try and make that alternative resplendent with new ideas and, and ways of, of making citizens powerful, um, which wasn't simply just this, this kind of state-based or kind of big state kind of a solution. Since then, like the, the kind of politics which we've journeyed through has often felt like one where there's been radicalisms on, on kind of both sides. You know, there was the kind of Corbyn revolution and there was also UKIP. Yeah, the kind of like the... The problem rather than the solution has been, you know, how do you make the centre ground, the kind of liberal democratic centre ground, as attractive, as as interesting, as as exciting as both of those two things? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think there's a pithy answer to that, actually. Um, I think that what Demos has tried to do, or what we've tried to do anyway at Chasm, is to simply do work which tries to constantly be probing and adding new ideas to that to that debate. It will ultimately be political leaders who will make that kind of um, uh, argument to the people um, over general elections, if not before. Um, but what think tanks hope to do, I think, is to plug in there and to continually try and like enlarge the universe of ideas which those political leaders can have access to. And that's 
just writing lots and lots of pamphlets, much of which might be complete nonsense in the eyes of the political leaders. And, but maybe there's one or two ideas in there that, that, that really will make a difference. It's extraordinary when you think about the amount of effort that so many different groups and individuals are putting in to try and create perhaps a more fair and democratic world and how often that springs from the grassroots. I find myself struck by the enormity of the challenge and then also you know, the pockets of, of progress that get made when you, when you see people come together, even when they make mistakes. I'm thinking perhaps you know, Extinction Rebellion, which has attracted a lot of mm. praise and fire and everything in between. Um, but it certainly caused a focusing of awareness on certain issues. And I think maybe that's half the battle is kind of getting people to wake up to, to the reality of the systems that aren't working. And for instance, in the realm of technology, I've noticed that certainly for myself and for other people where we feel like we can't share vulnerably or openly on Twitter certain ideas that we might once have been able to, there are pockets of spaces, whether in uh, private conversations or in closed groups, where people are really thirsty for that kind of deep dive and for investigation and for discussion as to what kind of world we want to build. In the same breath, you know, a lot of those closed groups become fertile territory for tribalism. And and I wonder what you think of the, the kind of maybe the payoff there between these technologies being used for good and for ill. I guess it kind of refers back to that arms race again that you mentioned earlier yeah it, it does and and this other theme which you've rightly raised we haven't spoken much about but but has been much worried about both by people in my world and I think kind of more broadly across society which is polarization tribalism and the role of digital technologies in all of that mm. and that for sure that kind of hardening of identity around kind of smaller pockets of of acceptability for sure, is is this measurably a, a societal trend that we've seen? It it actually all begins really um, with Clinton in the states. Actually, quite a lot before um, social media platforms get adopted. So I've always kind of um, been somewhat sceptical of the idea that Twitter and Facebook are actually responsible for any of that. But but they're certainly in the way that they work, and YouTube especially actually here mm-hmm. contributing to it. Just to add one thought, there is since kind of in- increasing enforcement action we saw in the wake of the Capitol riots, we've also seen a kind of fragmentation not only of cultures online and communities online but also the platforms they use mm. so so more and more we actually see you know a, a migration away from the mainstream platforms by by extremists but by other groups as well um onto in, increasingly a kind of like a diverse array of kind of middle-sized or even small platforms i don't really know yet whether that's going to entrench the um, isolation which groups feel from each other. In some ways, actually having access to the other side of the political spectrum is also a very easy and quick way of completely enraging yourself by, by whatever they're doing as well. So it, yeah, That's true. Yeah, so it's never been that clear to me that simply being linked with someone that you massively, hatefully disagree with is actually in any way going to decrease the amount of uh, mm. like you know, dehumanisation which you've probably gone through in, in thinking about them. But I don't know, it's a bit, it's a bit too early to say, but, but definitely that platform fragmentation is happening in front of our eyes right now. Mm. It's also interesting, another thing that I've noticed, and maybe it's because, well, I think a lot of it, obviously, the way we see the world has a lot to do with our current context, state of mind, stage of life, etc. But having moved to Barcelona, I've definitely noticed the... The desire that people have, and also speaking with friends in the UK, for local resilience in a way that is physical, tangible and in person. And I wonder if this is something that has been amplified by forced isolation. But 
there seems to be a hunger also for in real life, offline connection with people. And of course, when you shake someone's hand and you get away from the, the screen-induced online disinhibition that allows you to pour your outrage at some unknown person across the, the ether. Right. When you, when you kind of meet in person, it becomes very hard to sustain that or even to get to the point of outrage where you would kind of engage in the same fierce sort of way. What are your thoughts about that? Is this something that you're that you're thinking on or that you've come across in your reading? Yeah, I, I, I actually think that, that uh, the, the way that we remoulded the online world during the pandemic actually also um, counteracted some of the toxic trends that we were seeing. So kind of w- one very interesting thing was the way in which you saw like previously geographic like entities or groups um, actually being reformed online. So, you know, like um, uh, the, the, the road creating their own WhatsApp group. Yeah. Um, or the kind of local bowling club or meeting on on Facebook or or FaceTime. Um, And that seemed to reform a bit, I think, the the kind of the the, the kinds of people that people were engaging with online and the kinds of relationships that they had. Um, There's much to be optimistic with there, I think. This is not simply, you know, a story of us being annoyed with other people on Twitter. I think the the kind of legacy that COVID has left us with is is actually quite a rich array of online platforms or kind of quasi-online, offline platforms that that, that include lots of kind of offline groups too or echoes Mm. of them. So um, I I, I think there was was a lot of huge benefit, really, that that society got from the digital world um, over the pandemic. Which which wasn't just about us being angry with each other. So yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I had a, I kind of a quiet optimism throughout, really. Mm, I love that. So thinking about where we are now and the forthcoming studies that you're yet to release and publications that you're working on, what are your hopes and fears for this moment? My hope um, is that we come out of the pandemic with this new idea, which I think formed somewhat during the pandemic of of what is going to be acceptable to do and not do. There was a transformation in, in, in platform responsibility during the pandemic. And we saw the, the giants taking a far more proactive role mm. in what kinds of behaviour that they thought was reasonable. Um, and my hope really is that, you know, we, we can put a kind of uh, a, a layer of democratic oversight across the top of that and actually begin to bring the digital world closer to the rules and norms that we have in the offline one. And my fear is that um, information warfare will run amok, really, and that um, we we will just increasingly see the online world as as being something which just damages the civilizational existential causes which we need to discuss. And that won't only destroy or, or harm or be a retrograde influence on those causes. It will also mean that we just turn away from the online world too. Uh, and I can see if we do not get this under control... I can see a, a an eventuality where we just simply don't trust anyone that we don't know online. If that vision comes to pass, do you think it sounds as though you're pointing towards almost more of a kind of in-person village mentality of, do I know this person? Have I met them? Can I shake hands with them? Do I trust them enough because there's a track record of past behaviour that I can point towards? Is that kind of what you're envisioning as a possible possible future track? Absolutely, yeah. Like so, so trust in you know we're going to see everyone's going to be a Russian bot or a or a Chinese info agent, you know, and we're going to our trust of of not only our circle, not only of of those we trust, but actually have any kind of meaningful engagement online might just shrink down to 
to, to leave us kind of leaning on, on completely non-digital kind of forms of trust, which we then kind of replicate in the online space as well. So, which will be a great shame because, you know, the, the internet's always been envisaged as a way of us, of allowing our minds to soar away from our terrestrial circumstances and, and join groups and, you know, uh, mobilizations and form identities, which actually are not geographically um, specific. So, um, I think that would be a kind of tremendously sad step away from um, one of the huge, just unspeakably rich benefits that the internet can bring us. I mean, it then opens a whole conversation around what future technologies we could, we could create that would that would protect communities in such a way that it does still allow for that kind of broader vision to exist so that we don't have to just retain contact with those few small numbers of people that we actually know do you think and I'm thinking here specifically about things like the situation now with people moving away from whatsapp towards telegram and signal which those of us in the tech space have long known about but it's taken a lot of people a long while (laughs) to realize the benefits um banging the drum on privacy and encryption but do you see that there is a, a really exciting possibility here as well for technology to provide some solutions to preserve that original vision for the internet yeah, I think there is. And I, I think it's definitely the um, the civic tech space, which is the most interesting to me. Mm. You know, the idea that th- th- there might be ways of building all these things, all these new possibilities, you know, wh- which are just, just totally eminent, of course. The radical designability of the of the of the present state is is something which technologists kind of understand and 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 perhaps most of the rest of us kind of don't so much you know any platforms we use can be redesigned you know really quite radically if we want i definitely think there is a there is a revolution there around um designing them in ways which aren't simply about capturing attention or mm. or even delivering a profit if possible um and 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 you know there is a civic tech community uh global community i think that's waiting in the wings to do that and actually not just waiting but but working very hard to do that right now that's super exciting are there any resources that you found valuable in that space that you can point listeners towards i I would say check out polis so that was the platform i briefly mentioned which facilitated the taiwan digital democratic discussions it is an amazing platform i think it's an it's an entirely new process and way of having political discussions um and it's something which can be you know, used in companies to form consensuses around like strategic direction. It can be used in local councils to form consensuses around um, planning permission. There's, there's there's manifold ways in which that might be used. So if you're interested in stepping away from um, discussions which lead to acrimony and towards discussions which lead to consensus and common ground and, and often exposing a common ground which was always there but was kind of hidden by all the acrimony, then then check Polis out, pol.is. Brilliant. I'll check that out and I'll add that in the show notes. Before we close, I'm intrigued to ask you if there is a book that has captivated your imagination recently and why. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I know that you read. (laughs) You know, actually, uh, um, one thing I haven't been doing is reading too many books on on tech and politics. Mm -hmm. What I have been doing is reading science fiction again. You know, I guess this goes back to the kind of escapism of of the pandemic and, and finding ways of leaving your leaving your house or your room the expanse series you know the the amazon uh the amazon series but the expanse series of of science fiction books are absolutely brilliant um i highly recommend them to anyone that that loves kind of um you know the culture series or asimov or anything like that Mm, brilliant and finally then given everything that we've covered today we've covered a lot of territory what question do you want people to sit with at the moment how can we declare peace in information and can you unpack that a little bit (laughs) so if information warfare is happening everywhere 
how do we de-escalate it? There is a Nobel Prize for someone in this question. Because at the moment, all the solutions are about meeting information warfare with information warfare. And none of it is about how do we drain the conflict out. And do you think, from your perspective, that that might require a combination of approaches? So it could be something around working with culture, working with technology, or where, where do you start to, to answer that question for yourself? Well, I mean, I think this is, um, to, to use a horrible kind of think tank phrase, this is an all society kind of problem. Um, so it, it's, it's never going to be solved by, by one particular industry or skill set or profession. Um, and that's kind of why I'm posing it, really, because um, I think that this has to do with culture and has to do with philosophy. It, of course, it has to do with tech, but it's also got to do with art, most of which I've got absolutely no idea about. <laughs> so, but, but I think probably many of your listeners do. So um, there's, there's going to be ways of attacking that problem, of, of, of raising a white flag um, in the information space, which I've got no idea about at the moment. I'd love to, I'd love to have anyone's ideas that, that, that has thought about this from a different angle. Sounds like maybe there's room for a uh, cheeky event on this, bringing people together to have discussion and to see what, what solutions could emerge. Oh, yeah, with, without a doubt, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your, for your generosity and your very provocative, very interesting insights. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh, pleasure as always, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>